How do you wish to plead? I plead guilty. Guilty to assault. What about mass murder? We have a long ways to go. The Stoneman Douglas High shooter faces the death penalty. In no ways, uh, being guilty removes death penalty from the table. It should be apparent to all why I was terminated. Miami's new police chief gone, ending weeks of drama, or does it? Chief Acevedo made several statements. Uh, one of them was that this place is full of backstabbers and snakes. I think a lot of the points, uh, if not all of them, are right on point. The mayor, who turned on his hand-picked hire, is here to explain. Look at how far we've come since President Biden was inaugurated. The congresswoman says, take a chill pill. Everything's going to be okay. My dad used to say to me, boy, be your own boss man. The race to replace late Congressman Elsie Hastings, a packed field face-to-face. -face. The biggest news of the week all live this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. A packed hour ahead, including Miami's mayor on the ouster of the police chief he himself brought to town. But first, late this week, we saw and heard from the 23-year-old gunman who early on confessed to the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School three years ago. He stood uh, before a Broward judge late last week. He said he was guilty of assaulting a jail guard. On Wednesday, Cruz is expected to plead guilty again to those murders, 17 students and faculty at Miami at Douglas High and attempting to murder and wounding 17 others. The strategies and the context of these high stakes, high profile case, it is so important to this community. Gail Levine knows them well. She is one of Miami-Dade's most prolific prosecutors, retired late last year after more than three decades prosecuting some of South Florida's most notorious killers. Gail, it is so good to have you on the program. Gail, nice we, we are so glad you were here. Let's sort of begin, walk us through the legal process about what comes next. There will be no a guilt phase in the trial. Now we move on to a penalty phase. Explain how that works. Well, I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to explain what people in the system really don't get to know. First of all, as most people would understand, when you kill 17 people, you don't get to pick your own sentence. In the state of Florida, there's only two possible penalties for first degree murder. One is life without the possibility of parole, the same sentence as he could receive for one attempted murder with a firearm. The second possibility is, of course, the death penalty. So what will happen now is the community will get a chance to hear what we call aggravating factors, factors that weigh in favor of the death penalty against mitigating circumstances, circumstances that weigh in favor of a life sentence. That will be a full trial people are under the misconception that it's just a short, uh, possibly a one or two day hearing. No, they will pick a full jury, a jury of his peers that are open to the possibility of a life sentence or the death penalty. Gail, they I want to, I, I just want to, um, I want to clarify that the, uh, his attorneys have said that this coming week he will be 
doing a change of plea. He will be pleading guilty to those murders. So technically, just to clarify, it has not happened yet, and of course, anything can happen. But we're going on the assumption that his attorneys are, are right. And, and what was interesting to hear was that they are offering, presumably, this change of plea without a plea deal. Because when we hear of plea deals, we think, okay, they're gonna plead guilty in exchange for X, Y, Z, something to do with the sentencing. What is the significance of this young man changing his plea to guilty without being promised anything in return? The significance is that he's chosen to go forward and I guess maybe his lawyer's belief is that this choice of saying he's guilty will add remorse to his mitigating circumstances and maybe one person on that jury will think that that's enough for a life sentence because it only takes one vote for life on each count of the murders on each count of each person's murder yeah for there uh, to be a life sentence so each individual count of murder for each individual victim gets a determination whether he will receive the death penalty. Yeah. Gail, the jury will have to on 17 counts separately. Right. Gail, uh, as you well know, the, a lot of the families here, the 17, the families of the 17 who were murdered, the 17 who were terribly wounded, um, <clears throat> they believe, I think, probably that they're going to be spared the agony of having to endure testimony and photographs of the crime scene. But in fact, in the in the uh, the penalty phase, some of that evidence is going to be presented, won't it? Well, I don't think just some of it. I think all of it. The prosecutors are entitled to provide all of the evidence they would have provided in the guilt phase, and also then go over those aggravating factors: the fact that he planned it, the fact that he did it in a heinous, atrocious, and cruel manner making those people suffer, that there was a great risk of harm to others. The families will not necessarily be spared, but the community will be allowed to know the entire context. And it is the community that makes the recommendation to her honor. You know, I'm glad we're talking about the families. That, that is who is important in this right now. And, and I know you as a prosecutor and your work, you work with victims advocates because the survivors, victims' families are very much part of the prosecution process. So here we have 17 or, or 34 families, but 17 in particular, who have among them very different perspectives about what they would mm -hmm. like to see happen and what would mean justice to them. How is the prosecution handling that? What advice would you give them? Well, as a prosecutor, I think people don't really understand the relationships that we form with our victim families. We become a part of their families, in effect. We endure their pain and oftentimes see even more of the pain than they suffer because we look at all of the evidence. I think the prosecutors in this case are extremely sympathetic to that. I think that they are very knowing, very experienced people that have had the opportunity to talk for hours to all of these families. And yeah. as I said, it only takes one death penalty, one victim to receive the death penalty right. for the, him to get the death penalty. 
Yeah. The, the lead prosecutor is, in fact, Mike Satz. For four decades, the uh, prosecuting attorney uh, in Broward County, very experienced and, and fine prosecutor. Uh, Gail, let me ask you this. Uh, Nicholas Cruz, as we have all learned uh, over the last three years, had a terrible youth. Uh, he had emotional, mental issues, and they were never really addressed. But his defense is not really a, a mental deficiency uh, defense here. So to what degree can his attorneys get a psychologist, psychiatrist on the stand to say this is a damaged child uh, who committed a terrible act, but uh, you should not execute him because of it? Well, I think that's a more complicated issue. First of all, from what I understand, he's had a lot of psychological help throughout his years in school. He's been to a very, very excellent school, the Henderson School, where he's had psychological counseling. He's been offered psychological counseling. He chose not to take a part in that in the end. I think that what they will try and do is uh, use some of that psychological counseling to their advantage, but I think his statements in court on Friday were a bit telling. He said he's only been diagnosed with anxiety and depression and has not been on medication for more than a year's time. So I think that there is a bit of an uphill battle because anxiety and depression do not really account for 17 murders and 17 attempted murders. Gail Levine, so great to have you breaking down this case. So much more to come in this complicated and heartbreaking episode. Uh, thanks again for being with us. Great to see you. Thank you, Gail. Appreciate it. All right, the Miami police chief is fired after just six months on the job, and we are going to speak to Mayor Francis Suarez when we come back. Plus, Marsh, Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez brought in Art Acevedo from Houston as a surprise big-name outsider to shake things up at the Miami PD. Then he stayed silent as Acevedo shook too hard for some tensions mounted. At the end of this week, the mayor said the chief was too much of an outsider and had to go. Mayor Francis Suarez is here today for a closer look at what happened. Good morning, Mayor. Mr. Mayor, good, good morning. morning. Great good to morning. see you. We're so glad and Michael. Good okay. to see you both. Well, thank and you as well. Thank you very much. You. Mr. Mayor, let's cut right to the chase. You brought sure. in Art Acevedo, big name, you called him the Michael Jordan of police chiefs, said he was going to reform the Miami Police Department. He made some blunders, said some you know, inappropriate things, angered some people, fired some uh, brass at the chief uh, at the department, uh, and he did not kowtow to Miami Commissioners Joe Carroyo and Alex Diaz de la Portilla. When he got in trouble, you sort of disappeared. You weren't there. And then finally, uh, Thursday night, uh, he was fired by the city manager and the commission. Uh, honestly, uh, Mr. Mayor, you did not cover yourself with honor in this affair. Where were you? I disagree with that, obviously, Michael. You know I respect you and your perspective and opinion, uh, but I totally disagree with that. I, I'm the mayor of the city. Uh, my responsibility is not to an employee. Uh, it's not even, uh, you know, to a particular political actors. My responsibility is to the residents of the city of Miami. And so when I made statements, uh, instead of going on camera, 
which is appropriate given certain circumstances where you have situations where there's allegations of, uh, you know, in investigations, uh, allegations of, of, you know, criminal investigations for which there are arrests that are being made. Uh, you know, you have to be careful. Um, there are the possibility of litigation. Uh, you have to understand that you, you ha have a good working relationship with the commission. I want to preserve that. Um, and so I'm, I'm careful with, with the words that I choose. Uh, and I, I always said at the appropriate moment, I would speak. I've given, I can't, I, I can't even count the number of interviews that I've given uh, in the last week, uh, including, you know, coming here on your show. Uh, you know, and, and listen, you, you, when we make a decision as a city, we have 4,500 employees. Every single employee that's hired, you hire them with the best of expectations. I think there's no one that can debate that the chief uh, had was extremely qualified, you know, having been chief of three major departments and the president of the major cities chiefs association. And I think we all had high expectations and high hopes. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. And when that happens, you have to move on. And that's important too, because you know, no one and, and no situation is bigger than the city. And I think what's important is that the decision was made unanimously, which I think says that everyone agreed that it was time to move on and focus on our job, which is to serve our residents. Okay, well, we're not gonna move on just yet because we have a couple more minutes to really drill down here. And Mayor, uh, what we saw go on in public is a process. What went on behind the scenes is perhaps more telling. And, and really the question in the public perception right now is, you brought in and the manager brought in this man with a specific intention and mandate, and that was to shake things up, whatever that meant to you. Uh, and obviously to shake up what was not being shook up already by insiders at the Miami Police Department, and he did. And so for the eight reasons that were enumerated for Art Acevedo's termination, the public perception is that the commissioners, who are far more powerful in this case, orchestrated his ouster because they did not like that shakeup. Well, first, first of all, first of all, that's your characterization of why the manager that, chose. That is public perception but, but as let, we let have me, seen let, it let, here let, at Local 10. Let, let me finish, Lana. Uh, that's your perception of why the manager brought him in. I think the manager brought him in because he was the most qualified candidate to do the job. Okay, I don't want uh, to know. interrupt you, Mayor, but I do want to, because we have such a short time together, I just want sure. to read you something out of, out of the Chief's memo to you. Um, he said that verbatim, recruited by you and the, may the mayor and the city manager, both of you indicated there was a need to reform the Miami Police Department and to change the culture of the agency. Um, is that what you told him or did he misunderstand? No, I think, listen, every single department, we have 26 departments, every single department uh, needs improvement. Uh, you know, I'm the kind of person that wakes up uh, wanting to improve my city in the way that it functions every single day. So you can say that equally about every single department. You can say that about, you know, my office, the city manager's office. We wake up every day trying to reform our city and make it better and stronger uh, as a vehicle uh, for prosperity for our residents. So I, I don't think there's anything particularly earth shattering about those words. Um, every single department needs to improve and we're always going to be focused on finding people that can make our departments better. So I, I'm not so sure that I understand why that's uh, problematic. What yeah. is the culture of the agency that you would like to see improved? I mean, I, maybe those specifics are important. So <clears throat> can you share those? Sure. Well, I think number one under, you know, as the manager said, part of the problem was that under the chief, the culture became somewhat toxic. Um, and I think now, you know, what we want to see is stability. We want to see, um, frankly, our 1,400 officers, which are phenomenal officers, men and women in our department, we want to be able to focus on their work and on things that are important, like our homicide rate, like our part one crime rate. Um, we're one of the few cities in America this year 
uh, where our homicide rate is actually below last year. Most big cities in America, uh, they're up. And you know, one of the things that we did with the commission in unison was we approved a budget of over a billion dollars unanimously, um, where we added more police officers to our force. We increased funding for police officers. So it's important that the political people get along, uh, that they work together unanimously. That's That has to be preserved. And no one employee is more important than that. I've gone through this. This is the third time in my lifetime that I've gone through this one. Warshaw, you know, my father uh, were disagreeing when Exposito, who was Tomas Regalado's handpicked chief, uh, you know, was calling him a crook and saying that he was beholden to the yeah. gray market machines. So, you know, this is an, it's unfortunate that we're here. Yeah. We have to move on and we have to focus on what's important, which is serving yeah. our residents. Uh, Mayor Suarez, for what it's worth, I was there 20 years ago you when your father, you know, I had know you feud, Joe Correo and Don Warshaw. I, I know all about that. You know, here's, I know you do. here's something, Mr. Mayor, that I, I want to ask you about. In his memo to you and the city manager, uh, Chief Acevedo said that there had been improper interference in personnel decisions uh, by members of the commission, three commissioners, that they had improperly tried to use police and city code enforcement officials to punish their political enemies. Now there's supposed to be an investigation into that, but it's going to report back to the commission. So how serious can this investigation be? Well, I think there's, you know, first of all, anytime there's any allegations made, they should be investigated. And certainly, um, you know, the commission wants to create its own investigation on a variety of subjects, which they have the charter right to do. But I think, you know, I, I, listen, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not someone that can look at those allegations and determine whether uh, whether they have merit or don't have merit. Um, and the chief has every right to, uh, you know, make the allegations that he made, maybe not in the in the way that he did it, uh, but I think it's important uh, that any, you know, allegations of, of of any misconduct are investigated and we'll see whether, whether any investigatory agencies do that. I have not been informed that any investigatory agencies are in fact investigating any of those allegations. And if, it, you know, if I did and, and was, you know, was, was told that I couldn't talk about it, I obviously wouldn't, but I can tell you that that has not happened. Okay, Mayor, we're going to take a quick break, sit tight, and uh, we'll pick this up in about two minutes. Thanks. You got it. Okay. On This Week in South Florida, we are happy to be speaking with Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. Mayor Suarez, uh, early on in his tenure as chief, um, Art Acevedo did and said some things which called his judgment into question uh, at a, a, a roll call meeting of police officers. You know, we talked about the Miami Mafia, a phrase which, of course, was associated with Fidel Castro, he later apologized for that. He made some personnel changes, which really angered a lot of the some uh, ranking command staff at the police department in that period. Did you ever take him aside or call him up and say, Art, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing this. I mean, let me give you my advice. You know, you are not making a friend. You're not doing the right thing. It's not the, the kind of chief I had looked for. Did you do that? Many, many, many times. <laughs> That's all I can say. Many, many, many times. And what did he say? Well, I mean, you know, in the case of, of that statement, he obviously apologized uh, for it uh, after the fact, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, in some cases didn't listen, um, continued uh, to do uh, some of the things that, you know, 
myself, the manager, and the manager sort of indicates that in his memo where he says, you know, I have given you advice that you have not taken, um, and now I think you need to take the advice. And it, it changes from advice to a directive. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, uh, that advice and those directives were not heeded, which is why we were where we were. So the actual termination was for eight different points. Al, we touched on a couple of those outlined in the manager's letter. Yep. And then the process on Thursday was a quasi-judicial hearing that That's was right. supposed to end with the votes of five commissioners, which it did. And, and at the very beginning, at the outset, Acevedo's attorney said they would not be participating with the defense because this was, in their words, a preconceived outcome. And in the end, it was the outcome they expected. But the eight points in the memo and all the evidence brought out in that hearing had already been through a thorough hearing two weeks ago by three commissioners who built that case over the course of a two-day hearing. Was this, by that three-to-whatever vote, three being the majority, was it a, a preconceived outcome? Well, it wasn't a three-to-two vote. It was a five-to-nothing vote. Well, I'm, no, I'm saying it, was, it would have been whatever the three to two, four to one, five to zero, as long as the three people oh, who had was, built the case against him were voting to oust him, it was a done deal. So was well, that a preconceived it, it was. It was a unanimous vote, meaning even the commissioners that were not referenced in the memo voted, uh, it, you know, voted to support the manager's rationale and my thinking that it was time to move on. So this was a unanimous decision of our government. You have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, five commissioners, a manager and a mayor that sometimes don't agree with each other, all agreeing that it was time uh, right, to move Right, but forward. Mayor, my, my, question, so, my question was the three of the commissioners had already built that case two weeks ago, clear in their intention that they did not want them there. And then two weeks later was the actual vote to oust him that Acevedo's attorney called a preconceived outcome. And my question to you is, does it look to you like it was a preconceived outcome? Absolutely not, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell you why, because I was a commissioner, and I remember being a commissioner and sitting trial as a judge in a very similar circumstance. In fact, the then police chief, Miguel Exposito, actually went into court to try to disqualify me as a judge because prior to the hearing, I had made statements uh, as you know, my role as a commissioner uh, that were not favorable to his tenure. We have uh, dual roles as commissioners, and uh, when I was a commissioner, it was a dual role. You have a role to be a public policymaker and to talk about things. You guys obviously want me to talk about things constantly uh, and, and on camera. So you have a role of, of giving your opinion, giving your perspective, and running, helping run the city. And then in other uh, moments, given the charter, your role metamorphosizes. You have, you have to sit as a finder of fact, which is why I think the commissioners, more than one, uh, we're very adamant about having the chief put on a case and adamantly ask the chief specifically to, to that they wanted to hear from him under oath and the chief decided not to do that which frankly surprised me i thought the chief would uh, mount a defense i thought the chief uh, would speak in his defense uh, particularly since the manager had not allowed him to speak to the press for a period of time so i i, I really thought we were going to hear from him we we're going to hear from his defense and i think that frankly makes it much more difficult for him to sue the city going forward yeah. Mayor Suarez, uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, there were a couple of commission meetings where particularly Commissioner Joe Carroyo just sort of went off on Art Acevedo, said he ought to shut up, he ought to come down, arrest him in the commission chambers. He berated him. He showed a video of uh, Acevedo at a fundraiser in Cleveland in an Elvis 
uh, costume, you know, and ridiculed him. Uh, do you think that Commissioner Corio, uh, I mean, everybody's got free speech rights and he is a city commissioner. Did he go too far? Well, he's not only a city commissioner, Mike, but he's a city commissioner up for election, as I am a mayor that's up for election. Uh, and I want to remind the voters that on November 2nd, there is an election for uh, our voters, our residents, our bosses to choose their elected representatives. And so uh, what's interesting is, is what are the voters going to choose who are the ultimate deciders? They're, that's our jury, right, in terms of our job performance and the decisions that we make. And so I think we have to respect the democratic process that people are chosen democratically uh, to lead this city, whether we like them or not, or whether we like every decision that they make or don't like every decision that they make or every their style or whatever, you know, and, 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 and that's what's important as a mayor and as commissioners for us to forge a path forward, getting along to make sure that we have the agenda of the residents top of mind. And I think, frankly, this situation, as unfortunate as it was, became a major distraction. I can tell you it was a delaying a variety of other important things that we had to do. And it was time for us to move forward in a, in a different direction. Yeah. And we've done that. And, and, and we did it in a unified fashion. I know that bothers some, uh, you know, pundits that bother some in the press, not, you know, present company excluded. And it bothers, uh, you know, some former politicians and current politicians that we were actually unified and we were able to make a tough decision together and move forward. Mayor Francis Suarez, I can't speak for all press, but I will tell you that we just kind of question authority. That's what we do. <laughs> Nothing personal to anyone. And you both do a great job of it. We've been doing it for a long time, and that's why I respect you so much. And we appreciate, we appreciate you coming on with us Thank today. Thank you, Mayor Suarez. Anytime. Thanks so much. All right. All right, hundreds of thousands of people in South Florida have technically had no representation in Congress since Elsie Hastings passed six months ago. Eleven Democrats are running now in the 20th Congressional District in just a few weeks, and we're going to hear from three of them next. Congressman Elsie Hastings died in April, and that opened up a stampede of candidates hoping to fill his seat in the 20th Congressional District, parts of Broward and Palm Beach counties. Eleven Democrats are running for the nomination, count them, eleven, and in this most Democratic district in the state. The nominee will more than likely, excuse me, Glenna, <laughs> Democratic nominee likely will be the winner. So let's introduce you to at least two at the moment. Barbara Sharif, uh, she is a Broward commissioner who's been mayor in the past and she runs a healthcare company. And Sheila Sherfalis McCormick also runs a healthcare company and is running for this district for the third time. And ladies, as you know, we had hoped to have Dale Holness with us today, also a Broward commissioner who has been mayor. Uh, and he is not here with us at the moment, but maybe he will in the next few minutes as we speak. So a lot of face-to-face. Also, of the 11 candidates, we are going to have as many as we can in shows coming up and programs coming up. Right. So let's get started. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, Sheila Sherfalis McCorpink, let me begin with you, if I may. The centerpiece of your campaign uh, is really a $1,000 annual guaranteed payment to all citizens. Uh, this would cost billions of dollars if it were to come to pass. Where would that money come from? 
Well, we have on our website where we talk about our tax agenda and what we want to normalize is taxing and spending directly into our community. We do have parameters. The $1,000 stimulus check that we're requesting is for the for as long as we have to recover. But this is not necessarily something that just came out of the blue. As we see that there's a 56 states, 56 counties are, that are looking into it and mayors are looking for some kind of guaranteed income credit, just like we see the child income tax credit, especially now when we're trying to recover and in cities like ours and districts like ours, where we have high unemployment, high um, poverty rates, we really need something to keep us going so we can actually not fall, fall further behind. Barbara Sharif, what do you think about that idea? So I've said in the past that um, any semblance of this is just a Band-Aid uh, for a greater problem, and that uh, I think it's a gimmick. We know that we're not going to be able to pass that in Congress. We can't even pass what we really need, which is a $15 an hour uh, livable wage, which is what I'm supporting. I want to go and join the Democrats and get that across the line because when people make enough money to live, they can afford housing and they can achieve the American dream, which is home ownership. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner Sharif, you, like in fact uh, Ms. Sherpolis McCormack, are in the health care business. You've both been very successful. Uh, the bill before Congress that is a big controversy, Build Back Better bill, maybe $3.5 trillion or less, it includes a lot of money to improve health care, make it available to seniors, dental, vision care. Uh, Commissioner Sharif, you, if you're in Congress, you would vote to uh, pass that bill, would you not? As a doctor of nursing practice for 28 years in the healthcare profession, we obviously need to pass um, a bill that supports healthcare and infrastructure. And sitting on the 16 County Coalition for Water Resources, as well as the Metropolitan Planning Organization, um, it, it, it goes right in line with the Build Back Better plan and increasing jobs in Broward and Palm Beach County. So yes, I would support that bill. But I would make one distinction between myself and Ms. McCormick, and that what, is, what is that? I am, what is I the distinction? <laughs> I hold a license to practice in healthcare, so I'm not. I am. I'm not just a business owner, but I'm also a healthcare practitioner. Sheila, and I, and I hope it's okay if we're on first name basis here. It just makes things easier. Um, Sheila, the uh, follow up to Michael's question. It, this bill, both the traditional infrastructure bill and what they're calling the human infrastructure bill, th this is such a, an issue of wrangling right now because the Democratic Party and its many factions are holding out for what they want. O on the spectrum from progressive to moderate, where do you fit in there? And would you, when voting for this bill, these bills, would you be one of those holding out for what you want? I definitely will, because if you look at our district, what we need is really in right in line with the Build Back Better program. But really what we're looking at is a district that has continuously had so much problems accessing healthcare, continuously had so many problems accessing even education, continuing education. And this bill is dire for our district. Now, my background is in law, and I've been working and going to Congress for the last 10 years, advocating helping write bills and even amendments to make sure we're included. So it's imperative that we have someone who can go to Congress and really understands how to write that law and match it to our district. So, and so just, to, just to be clear, so you would hold out and, and possibly hold up the entire bill to make sure your component was in? 
Well, it's not even holding out just to hold back the bill, but it's negotiation. And that's what we're seeing right now. It's a democratic process in which we're negotiating. And until Cinema can say what she doesn't want in that bill, then we need to really find out what is it, why are they really stopping the bill? Because our district is in need. So if you want to remove something, what is it exactly? Tell everyone what it is exactly instead of doing it behind the doors, because that might hurt our district more than anything. And it's important that we have someone who can stand up for our district and ensure that we recover. And we can't have people who give up before they even try. We need a plan in place that can help us economically. We need a, to support plans that are designed to help us increase employment. As an employment owner, as an employer who's created over 1,200 jobs, who has a vocational school that has attached to a business, I know how to create jobs and I know what's necessary for us to function and flourish. And that infrastructure bill right now and the human component it's imperative that we have it here. That's how we recover. If not, our district will fall back. Yeah, Barbara, uh, let me give you an opportunity. You, as an employer, I guess your company is, what, 25 or so years old? I mean, you are uh, you a job creator as well in your, in your career. Absolutely, and one of the things that I think that uh, we lose sight of when this becomes political is the people who need the care, you see, and the, and the help. I, I'm not holding back anything. I'm going to get in there and get to work and try to push through that $15 an hour living wage. I'm going to push that Biden Build Back Better plan. I'm going to continue to uh, push for funding for CARES Act recovery. And I'm going to make sure that Congressional District 20 recovers because with people li not having a living wage, it is just, it's unfathomable to keep on pushing against this. I want to stay with healthcare just before we go to a break. So we have a, a little bit of time for one last question on healthcare. Sheila, in the yes. District 20s, roughly 800,000 residents in District 20, uh, mostly Broward and into Palm Beach, about one in five do not have health insurance despite the Affordable Care Act exchanges that the Democrats fought so hard for. Why is that and what to do about it? Well, the biggest issue that we have in Congress is not just asking for Medicare for all, but we need someone who actually understands how do you actually give Medicare for everyone and how do you bring it to the forefront. For the last five years, I've been proposing that we open up a telemedicine portal in which we can have more people having access to healthcare, even on the digital side, especially when we were confronted with COVID. In addition to that, we need to increase a portion of we have where we have preventative medicine. Every time we even talked about healthcare in Congress, when I was invited to go as a healthcare professional, it's always been about the budget, how much it costs. But if we're shifting a whole bunch of sick people onto health insurance, Medicare, what we see is it is going to be inflated. But we have proven results, and we know that the biggest um, the biggest waiters on our healthcare system, or what weigh the most, are diabetes, um, congestive heart failure. These things are preventable in some cases, and we even found that some parts of diabetes are reversible. So if we shift our attention and have more of an integrated process, in which now you have access to healthcare through telemedicine and you're being treated, then we won't have so many sick people on there. Mm, but that's yeah. another portion that is so important for our district. Yeah. In addition to that, we've yeah. seen economic barriers. Sheila, if I may, I, I let me jump in here. A corollary, mm -hmm. really, I haven't heard an answer to Glenna's question. You know, if mm -hmm. Medicaid money, billions had been accepted by Governor DeSantis, state of Florida, Rick Scott, and the state of Florida, over 700,000, maybe 800,000 people, including these people in this congressional district, would have had at least a basic coverage of health insurance. I mean, if you both 
are a member of Congress, would you work to try to convince the state of Florida to take that Medicaid money? Yes, so, I definitely would. Okay. I definitely would work towards that, but we have to understand why that's the situation. It's because of the way the bill was written. When we switch to a system which is Medicaid for all, we can circumvent the governor, and that's what we have to do. We can't allow and keep continuously write bills that allow the governor to step in and deprive the American people of health insurance. And that's where the power of the pen really comes in. Let's write a bill, pass a bill that introduces and allows the American people to get what Congress has designed for them. In fairness, Barbara, quick, your answer to that. So first of all, Medicare for all is not the answer. Healthcare for all is the answer. We know that the Medicare for all plan decreases nurse reimbursement rate by 40%. Nurses are the ones providing that healthcare at the bedside and have been overworked and underpaid for years. I support a Medicaid expansion. And on the um, nine years that I served on the National Bipartisan Health Steering Committee through the National Association of Counties, I proffered a plan to circumvent these belligerent 14 states. And that is for us to create a federally run Medicaid II program so that we can cover these people and not have that, those billions of dollars sitting there and have people having lack of access to care. And lastly, um, how are you going to promote online telehealth visits when we know that in the income challenged areas where we're lacking access, they don't have internet connections. That's why you have Boost and T-Mobile and all these carriers trying to provide internet connections in these areas. So I think that that's just a uh, um, lack of understanding of, uh, of health care and where we need to be focused. All right, point, point, right. point made, point taken. Uh, ladies, like if you will hold, hold, hold on just a minute, I beg mm -hmm. your pardon. We're out of time for this segment, and we are going to add Dale Holness, uh, a candidate, into the conversation when we come back. We are in the process of speaking with three of the candidates in the 20th Congressional District. The election is November 2nd, and we're delighted to see Dale Holness, former Broward County Commissioner, has joined us. Uh, Commissioner, welcome. Glad to see you. <laughs> good to see. Good to be here with you also. All right. Let me begin with a, uh, a question. I'd like to hear all of your answer, but uh, Commissioner Holness, let me begin with you. Uh, one of your opponents in this race, State Representative Omari Hari, Hardy, has said that if he had been a member of Congress, he would have voted against the appropriation of a billion dollars for the Iron Dome anti-missile defense system in Israel. And he also said that he supports the BDS movement uh, uh, against Israel. Commissioner Holness, where do you stand on BDS? Well, well certainly, I don't see that as being viable. Israel is our number one uh, friend and ally in that region. We benefit tremendously from the relationships that we've built in security, uh, in finances. Uh, we have a lot of investors that invest here in America from Israel. So I don't, I don't believe that it would be smart for us to, to go that way. And we, we have voted against that and, and in support of ensuring we continue building the relationship with uh, Israel in Broward County. Certainly what needs to be done is Hamas needs to be at the table. It, it's, 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 it's really crazy that they're still lobbing rockets when other Arab Muslim countries are actually building relationship and formalizing uh, relationship with, with, with Israel, it's a better approach for us to find a way to get to the table to create peace and prosperity for the people of Israel 
and for the Palestinian. Sending rockets across the border is not going to create prosperity for the people of Palestine, and, and, and Hamas needs to know that. On the subject of BDS and funding for uh, military boost funding for Israel, Barbara, and then Sheila. Yeah, so first of all, I went to Israel with the um, APEC uh, for the African-American Leaders Tour. And what we understand and what we know is that Israel is the only thing that stabilizes the Middle East, and we must fund the Iron Dome. Secondly, BDS is an idiotic uh, idea. Hitler tried that in 1933, and it didn't work. It's not going to work. And the only solution is a two-state solution. And that means that Palestine, Israel, they're going to have to come together. They're going to have to have clearly definable borders. There's going to be some land swapping that's involved, and it's going to be a compromise. We cannot interject into this hundreds of hundreds of year old conflict and say that we're going to just promote peace by not funding the Iron Dome. We're going to leave ourselves open for terrorist attack, just like Israel is terrorist has terrorist attacks coming from both sides, all sides of its borders. Yeah. We, as Americans, have to support that. And Sheila, weigh in, please, on VDS and supporting funding of the Iron Dome. I definitely do support the funding of the Iron Dome. Since Israel is one of our biggest allies, we have to make sure we build those relationships. In addition to that, for the last 10 years, we've been strong supporters of Christian United for Israel in ensuring that we're building coalitions to support Israel. I did want to mention one thing before, um, before I was caught the last time. Sorry for that. But when we talk about the importance, there's been a lot of money put in for telemedicines. That money is there. So it is not, it's not unbelievable that we can have the money for the community. But what it really displays is how Barbara doesn't understand what's going on in Congress and the money that has been set aside. That money is sitting there for telemedicine support, which we can pull down right now to put into our community. There was more money that was even sitting there during COVID that the county did not pull down. And we saw the discrepancy in looking at what was pulled down in Miami. Right, well, you, in you, that, you, excuse me, but you, you and Barbara are going to have to debate that and maybe we can do that at a future time. Uh, Sheila, before we run out of time here, a little housekeeping. When you qualified uh, to run, you signed a, 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 a federal paper, a qualifying paper, and it was notarized in uh, Maryland. And you, uh -huh. your former husband, lives in a suburb of Washington, lives in Maryland, in a house with uh -huh. his stepson. Uh, where, is your, where is your residence if your husband lives in Maryland and your stepson lives in Maryland, uh -huh. you know, in a house that is owned by your parents? But where is your home? Well, I live, I've, my residency has never changed. I live in Miramar. I've always lived here and I've always been a voter here. My son is actually in Maryland because his mother has breast cancer. And so um, he's living there to be closer to his mother in his last year. So the fact that um, our other candidates paid someone to follow my son and know he didn't want anybody to know that. My husband now is, he goes back and forth. But because she does have breast cancer, my son is there. My res residence has always been here. If you look at my filings, everything has always been here. Now, I have been going back and forth to support my son because that's very, very hard for him and we're a blended family. And for us to even have to put that here, it's embarrassing and it's hurtful for him. So All stepping right, so into bottom, that part. Bottom, excuse me, bottom line here is you say you are a resident, vote in live in Miramar, right? 
Yes, I've always been a Miramar resident. My okay. voter registration has always right. been here. That, that is going to be as much time as we have. Not enough, but we thank all three of you candidates. We will hear from more 20th CD candidates in the coming weeks. Be right back. Great to have you here for a packed hour. And remember, we're online 24-7 at local10.com. And that interview with Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz will be posted online, local10.com. Remember, stay informed, get involved, have a great Sunday.